Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. Welcome to 2018. This is our second show for January of 2018. Boy, do we have some interesting stuff for you. Lots of things have happened around Walt Disney World since the last time we got together. In order to talk about this, we need to bring in one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Hang on, Len. I need to pull my head in from the door open here on the monorail. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Let's talk about that. Por favor, I mantengan el hadro de las portas. Yeah. So a couple of days ago, there was video shared around the internet of a monorail going down the track with its door open. This is akin to having your airplane's emergency exit door open in flight. How was this received by Disney? And two, what happened? I'm told it was a bad sensor. The safety procedure when the monorail leaves the station is you have an employee there who gives you a thumbs up and you can leave. You know, all the doors have closed and... I'm told it left the station mm -hmm. with the door closed. Then a bad sensor evidently kicked the door open en route. As soon as they got it into the station and realized what had happened, they took it backstage, they took it offline, they addressed the safety issue as quickly as possible. But obviously, again, they couldn't stop the monorail en route and deal with that. They had to get it back to a station. But even so... A piece of footage like that is just, it travels fast, as it did. This comes at an odd time, given that they just put up the construction signs for the Skyliner. Yeah, <laughs> Skyliner can't come fast enough. Yeah, but at the same time, it's just one of those things where it's like, and the doors are going to close on that, right? Oh, yes, ab <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you know, there's a, mem a memo that went out that said, by the way, check the sensors. I'm a little surprised mm -hmm. that the monorail doors can open while it's moving. What's concerning for Disney, because they're not supposed to, Len, when this sort of thing happens, the panel up in the pilot compartment is supposed to light up like a Christmas tree. Sure. And then it does become a question of, at the driver's discretion, about you know how to handle this. And they made the call to get to the station as quickly as possible, as opposed to stopping en route. And not necessarily anticipating that in this age someone would whip their iPhone out. The monorail has been in tough shape for a while now. I just today got the most recent issue of Walt Disney World Eyes and Ears, the, the first issue for 2018. And there's actually a letter in here from George Calagridis, the president of Disney World. And the headline for the, his letter is Adding and Growing the Path to 50. So... <laughs> I know we've been talking about this forever. They're just now starting to pivot and walk out to the cast members that we need to be ready for the 50th anniversary. You need to put our best face on. Yeah, three and years from now, yeah. This is early the way you put your best face on. On the other hand, uh, the fact that, you know, if you're traveling and a door's open on the monitor, at least you're not smelling that mildew smell. I did notice, Jim, that the uh, the morning after mm -hmm. the doors were open, all of the monorails had stickers on them saying, please don't lean on the door. So that was a pretty fast turnaround for Disney on on that. I agree. We'll see what happens. I, I, my, I would not be surprised if the monorails were grounded again, like they've been in the past when the, when safety issues were uncovered mm -hmm. and you know newer sensors were installed and software upgrades happened and things like that. Here's hoping, here's hoping. But there is such a big emphasis right now, whether it's road construction or the Skyliner or the minivans. And in fact, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the note today about 
folks who were reaching out to us about the autonomous cars that are being showcased at, at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Yeah, I saw some of the, the demos on it. That was nice. Did you see that there is a suburb outside of it, Orlando now? It's a fairly large suburb, like many dozens of square acres or many dozens of square miles. But the entire suburb has autonomous cars shuttling people back and forth to the store. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Right outside of Orlando. And there the thing is, uh, I forget the company that's doing it. I'll find it in the show notes. But the company had said, mm-hmm. you know, the reason why we picked this community is their HOA is so powerful that they can control the roads mm-hmm. and it's self-contained. We don't have to leave property. Like we can take these residents to any one of the 14 grocery stores or 100 restaurants that are within this little community. And we don't have to leave essentially the government boundary of this community. And so we can operate entirely within the rules and restrictions of this HOA. Wow. What, what, else does, that, does, what does that sound, sound like to you, Jim? Like, <laughs> boy, <laughs> that sounds like, familiar for some reason. I can't. Just outside of Orlando. Let's see what happens come the 50th. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be intrigued to see how fast this actually happens. I would be surprised if you, if you didn't see a, some sort of self-driving car test by the end of this year. I'd be, I'd be moderately surprised. Well, there we go. Well, and now continuing with stuff that's in the news or, or more to the point, stuff that's shown up in our email boxes, why don't you share what you, you heard from somebody in regard to Disney Springs? Yes, this is interesting. We get, we get emails all the time from people. This one was from someone we won't name, but it was uh, this. I wanted to share something from a flight I was on this past November. I was returning to our, from Orlando on a Sunday evening to the town that I'm from, and I was seated next to a gentleman that was carrying blueprints in his carry-on. The gentleman worked for the Landry's corporate office, the restaurateur Landry's. The blueprints were for Rainforest Cafe 2.0 at Disney Springs. From my quick glances over the plans, it looks like the exterior will be themed to resemble an actual rainforest complete with treehouses for event spaces and dining patios dotting the outside. I'm not sure the time frame, but I wanted to share with you what I knew so you could dig up more information. So a redesign of Rainforest Cafe at Disney Springs. On the one hand, this kind of makes sense, Jim, mm-hmm. right? We know what Disney Springs has gone through over the last couple of years. I don't know, Jim, did you see the New York Times travel section for this upcoming weekend lists in its 50 places to go for 2018? Not Walt Disney World, but Disney Springs. Whoa. Okay. Right? Specifically okay. For, the, for the dining. Wow. Okay. Somewhere there's an executive right now who's who's breaking out the bubbly because think about it. For the longest time, the, the fact that it took as long as it did to get Disney Springs in remotely oh, yeah. presentable shape. Yeah. It, I mean, for the longest time, for the first twenty years it existed, it was the hinterlands. It was the it was the outpost that you go to when there was nothing else. You couldn't afford to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Now it's and, on the New York Times fifty places to visit in 2018. Wow. I have to ask, you know, before we, we slide back to Rainforest, what are you hearing from folks who got into Edison you know, just over the past week or 10 days? I haven't heard on the Edison, and I we're reviewing it, so I can't talk about when or where or why. So okay. yeah, maybe maybe the next show we'll be able to do it. <laughs> okay, cool, 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 cool. I mean, I just I have heard that uh, I've heard that the Maria Enzo's and the assorted pizza places were all uh, competent for what they were doing, mm-hmm. which was good. I mean, some of the things were actually they said were, were pretty good. I have questions about the the price, the portion size, but okay. yeah, what I heard about what I heard about the uh, the stuff around the Edison was was that it wasn't bad at all. Okay, well now to slide back to the rainforest and the change that proposed there, what's genuinely intriguing, at least to me, about this is this treehouse concept that's being floated because 
to be honest, since Pleasure Island closed, there have been a lot of corporate groups and wedding parties and that sort of thing that had grown used to going to Pleasure Island and holding their events. I mean, you know, think about the many times you wanted to get into the Adventures Club, but have been bought out for a private party or that sort of thing. Right. And for Disney, every one of those buyouts is guaranteed revenue. They don't have to worry about whether it's going to rain that night or mm-hmm. there's another event that people will find more interesting. They like booking those events because it's guaranteed money. But at the same time, though, when Pleasure Island was shut down to make way for Hyperion Wharf and then Disney Springs, you had all of these groups that were wanting places to go. And in fact, for the longest time, they wound up defaulting to Splitsville, which opened December 2012, right? Yeah. So Splitsville is very big for corporate events. I think two of the last three times I've visited in the last couple of weeks, the Mm -hmm. upstairs has been bought out for corporate events. Mm -hmm. And so they're taking, what, 40% of their capacity at that point and dedicating it to a group. Again, Splitsville has got to love it. It's it's guaranteed money. The Mm -hmm. corporate groups have to like it because Splitsville is both a highly rated restaurant and it's got entertaining bowling. I mean, it's it's got music. It's got good service. It's a win-win there. But I think that's the only place in Disney Springs that is like that, right? That's got some sort of food and a themed thing to do or see, right? Mm-hmm. So one wonders if there's a secondary agenda here with the tree houses that perhaps these will double as function space and whether corporate groups or wedding parties or, or whatever can get up into these spaces and... The folks that run Landry are a sharp bunch, and they have to have been eyeballing how Splitsville has been doing, and it's like, we want in on that. Of course, the irony of this is, here's all this work that's about to be done on the Disney Springs rainforest, and the Anaheim version's about to shut down for our five-star hotel there, so... Yeah. Hey. Well, but if they can, uh, you know, I don't know that you can make up all of the revenue from a rainforest cafe in downtown Disney in Anaheim, but adding events in a larger space to Orlando where they've got two, don't forget, you know, they've got the one at Animal Kingdom as well, but you know, adding that extra space may help. The other thing that could potentially help them in remodeling the Reforce Cafe in Disney Springs is its location. It's one of the few large restaurants in that side of Disney Springs. It's got a great view of the water too. So if you can add tree houses with good views of whatever things are going on, Let's say they, they add entertainment on the lake or whatever, or like the Intel drone show. That's mm-hmm. another big selling point right there as well. So I think they've got to be looking towards the future of that, that eventually at some point there will be nightly entertainment at Disney Springs too. Oh, it's it's so funny you say this. I've been doing some research out ahead of the, the 50th anniversary about things that never were at Disney World. And, and Craig McNair Wilson, the gentleman who helped invent Streetmosphere for Disney MGM and worked on the initial version of Pleasure Island actually talked about what the original sort of climax for the evening was supposed to be for Pleasure Island. and It wasn't uh, supposed to be a fireworks at midnight? Well, actually it was, but it was going to be like a different sort of fireworks at midnight. Do you remember the mythology for the fireworks factory? The notion was that Meriwether Pleasure had, had a factory there on site that made fireworks and that ended up blowing up. And... In one version of the mythology, the ship, the family ship that also was taken out by this fireworks. And what Craig wanted to do was every night 
just before midnight, the ghost ship would appear in the lagoon. You bring up the ghost ship from under the water, like uh, like in Pirates of the Caribbean with uh, Davy Jones's ship. But better that that it would it would rise up and then it would be consumed by fireworks and then sink back down into the lagoon. There. Why did we? You know what? We we have not lived sufficiently virtuous lives to see that kind of show because that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Could you imagine? What kind of bothers me sometimes is that when you, you poke at Disney history and you see it something like that, and it kind of breaks your heart that you didn't get it. But on the other hand, we do occasionally get things that are both stunning and also work. And, and of course, in this instance, I'm talking about something else that opened December of, of 2012, and that's the Be Our Guest restaurant over at, at the Magic Kingdom. Oh, yeah. I mean, you talk about something that uh, that changed the definition of dining in a theme park. Be Our Guest has to be one of those huge, huge milestones in theme park dining. Was it really 2012? Was it that long ago? Yeah, it's been five years and a month at this point. And wow. when you talk with the folks who worked in this, you know, the, the Chris Beatty's, you know, the, that sort of folk, they talk about how they came at this project with the notion of, 7576 has been character dining. We had the opportunity to have breakfast with Mickey on the Empress Lily, you know, again, mm -hmm. back in the days when they were genuinely struggling to get people to go to the shopping village. But over time, we saw how many of the parks brought character dining in as a revenue, you know, as something to, to take a venue that hadn't necessarily worked or was, was struggling, like Anchor House at Norway or the Crystal Palace. Yeah. When they brought character dining in that, that went from popular to supernova. Yeah. We don't even have to get into the whole King Stephen's Banquet Hall's Cinderella's Royal Table thing. And everybody knows the stories of what Arnie's Angels or whatever it was. I mean, the battles to get reservations for that. So Disney knew there was an interest in character dining. But what was intriguing, at least to me, is that if you think about it, Be Our Guest isn't really character dining right i mean there's two meals two meals another day you don't really have any characters it's character centric in that it's a heavily themed restaurant totally only early on did they actually have the beast in there in fact they were very careful about you only get to see the beast there yeah. and you couldn't see bell there because of course bell lived in you know maurice's cottage just up the street and it was like never the twain shall meet you know you right. want to go see bell you got to get in line over there well, I think logistically it worked well too because the concept of the restaurant was always that it was going to be counter service for breakfast and lunch or you know lunch at the time and then sit down for dinner. And to mix a character greeting and counter service was something that Disney had never done. They weren't, they, they weren't going to start with this. Talking with Chris Brady and that bunch, they talk about how this idea didn't actually start stateside. It started, uh, originally was proposed for the Tokyo parks. In fact, it came on the back of the opening of Queen, the Queen of Hearts Banquet Hall, which, which opened at Tokyo Disneyland back in, in March of 86. And I mean, this is a, a counter-service buffeteria-style restaurant. And, but what they noticed was that people would line up for hours to get in here, but the number one complaint from guests was like, I'd love to be sit in here and have someone bring food to me. This is such a wonderful space. 
This is Eddie Sato's group that created this amazing recreation of the the look of the traditionally animated Disney Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And the whole notion was that, well, wow, what if we could do something like that? So for a time, I mean, they kicked the tires of, well, all right, so if we did a, a lunch quick service and then could we turn a restaurant, could we in fact make it table service at night? The first run at this, was going to be a Little Mermaid restaurant with the idea that you get to dine under the sea. And they got as far as sort of sussing out the individual dining rooms and that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that really kind of bit them in the butt was like, it's going to be, it's under the sea. We're going to have to serve fish. And it's sort of like. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking as you were talking. (laughs) All of the flounder. No, you won't. No. (laughs) By the way, let me me tell you a side story here. So, uh, Mm -hmm. So Laurel took me to a, uh, a traditional New York deli mm-hmm. last month, a Jewish deli. And I wasn't thinking at the time. I had a lot of my mind. I tried to mm-hmm. order a cheeseburger with bacon. Uh-huh. And the old woman who was taking my order just looked at me and said, no. Mm-hmm. Like, pause, no. Okay, regular <laughs> hamburger's fine. Thank you. Anyway, so I, I get the sense of when you have seafood on the menu and someone says, I'll have the flounder, the answer will be, no, you won't. Yeah. <laughs> You, you understand your timing of the, the Disney company. The, we have Michael Eisner step down September 30th, 2005. So here's Bob Iger. And Bob has a lot of an, on his plate at that point. There's the Pixar situation to resolve. And, you know, he takes care of that in, in January of 2006. You know, it's just $7.4 But, hey, you know, it, it seems to have worked out. But the parks... For example, the Magic Kingdom at Disneyland, their fantasy land got an update in 83. They reinvented the rides. They right. really did a big overlay. Whereas if you look at fantasy land at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World, it's the was the most popular land in the most popular park. But if you, you look cold-bloodedly at it, it was all of these sort of patches on bad tires. It was a collection of midway rides. And yeah, so we, we've talked about this, I think, before in mm-hmm. in every other Disney theme park, Fantasyland is the heart of the park. Mm-hmm. It's the center. It's the centerpiece of every park. Disneyland. It's the it's the middle of the park. But in the Magic Kingdom, Fantasyland was more of an afterthought, or at least it wasn't. It didn't have its dominant position. Well, and and if you think about it, you know, you had, for example, twenty thousand leagues closes in September of nineteen ninety four. That real estate stays empty for over ten years. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, yeah, you got the aerial meet and greet thing built at the, the very age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, October 1st, 1996. But they didn't actually fill it in and turn it into anything, the, the Pooh's playful spot, till September 2005. So, I mean, you literally, you had this giant chunk of real estate you were not using at the very heart of your park and nothing kinetic moving through the water. I mean, no entertainment value. To be fair, I mean, the period... After September 11th, 2001, a couple of years after that, there was a, a market decrease in travel. And I think Disney was looking at that and wondering how much longer that dip in travel was going to happen. So there's a reason why they, they weren't making huge investments in the park in the early 2000s. And, and, and that was it. But go ahead. I totally agree. But at the same time, you had that amazing run of super popular Disney fairy tale films in the late early 90s. You had yep. you know The Little Mermaid in what 89, you had uh, Beauty and the Beast in 91, you had Aladdin in 92. And the company doesn't bring them into the park immediately. 
yeah, you can walk around characters, you get them in parades, and yes, they are showing up at character dining and, and that sort of thing, but the whole notion of people really do want to visit that castle, really do want to dine with the, the beast, and that was the thing that when they stepped away from the Little Mermaid-themed idea, the whole notion of, well, where is it that people really would like to go to dine? And it's like, you know, if you look at Beauty and the Beast and, you know, between the, the Be Our Guest number itself versus mm-hmm. the Great Ballroom versus the scene where Belle and Beast are sipping soup, it's like, this is the obvious place to go. It is. It's the obvious choice. Then it was like, okay, if we're committing to this new fantasy land idea, given that we see that the pent-up demand because of King Stevens, the pent-up demand because Crystal Palace, this place has to be huge. What was fascinating is it was all this back and forth initially about, well, do we do a full-size castle? Right, yeah. And the whole notion was in the end like, no. I mean, Cinderella Castle is the icon of Walt Disney World. We can't put a second castle in that park. We can put a force perspective smallish castle suggesting that way off in the distance is the beast castle and and again you know the the same conceit follows with what they did with the little mermaid with prince eric's castle it's like yeah it's there in the distance but you're there really to get into this ride and and knowing the demand it's like we need a huge capacity for this place well that's that's the thing i think that's most impressive about the balance that disney had to strike between yeah, this needs to be attractive on the outside, but it has to be massive on the inside. They have a space that is several times larger inside than the capacity of Cinderella Castle, and yet it's not on the outside as physically obvious as Cinderella no. Castle. It, no. I mean, they, they struck the right balance there. It, it, it's, a good, it's a good design. For as much amazing technology as there is in that building, I mean, the roses that power how they determine where you're seated in the restaurant and bring the food mm-hmm. to you, I love the fact that, that there's all that great design, but there's all that great technology, this sort of marriage of delivering the best possible show and the best possible experience in that space. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, making the tough choices, like when you talk with the, the Beauty and the Beast team, they were fights tooth and nail about bringing beer and wine into that restaurant. Because it's like, this is the Magic Kingdom. We don't serve alcohol. Alcohol, here. right. And the, the debates were on the one side, the, the traditionalists who had said, we don't serve beer or alcohol in the Magic Kingdom. And I think there's sort of probably three different angles to this. The restaurateurs who said, it's a French restaurant, it's a sit-down restaurant, people are going to expect a nice wine with their meal because this is France, after mm-hmm. all. Yep. And then the third group, which is the, the bean counters who said, looked at the profit margins on beer and alcohol and said, why aren't we doing this? Because I remember when, when the restaurant opened, there was some controversy about serving alcohol in the magic kingdom that because it's the most popular park and a lot of people spend all day there that the idea of consuming a lot of alcohol and seeing you know drunk people walking around the park would be uh, a real possibility but it turns out that it it didn't happen that way no if anything the needle got buried in the other direction remember how it had only been opened like six months or thereabouts and Disney had to creep in the number of reservations they were doing per day for Be Our Guest because instead of doing the traditional hour and a half, you know, you arrive, you're seated, you eat, and you're back out on the street in 90 minutes because you're in a theme park and you want to make the most of your day and, and get in as many ride shows and attractions, 
what they were seeing that two things one was people were lingering because they were enjoying the atmosphere and having a nice drink with it so dinner times was stretching out to two hours and the other thing they were finding is frankly mom and dad cutting the kids loose like hey we're having a good time here Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that the restaurant is so large mm -hmm. and so detailed and each of the areas is themed differently. The kids who are fans of the movie mm -hmm. want to go off and explore. And, and frankly, it's difficult to get kids to sit down, especially small kids, for two hours in a row. To say seated for two hours, I mean, that's, that's asking a lot of the kids. It's easy to let them go see you know, it's in the, the, the other rooms. But the other thing that Disney did, Jim, is mm -hmm. they did animations in some of the rooms. So remember the snow scene in the main dining room where snow looks like it's falling outside. And that's you know, basically computer screens emulating the view outside. That was some interesting and new technology for them to use in that restaurant. We had never seen it before, but it's a great effect. They Absolutely. Put all, yeah, so they put all the stuff in there. They put stuff in the rose room. They put stuff in the in the garden. Uh, they put stuff in the main dining room. You, you can't help but want to go look at all of it. And so, yeah, I, I'm not sure that the average dining time in, in, in Disney World these days is an hour and a half. It's probably closer to 70 minutes. But yeah, yeah I mean, so, so people are spending basically an extra 40 or 50 minutes in the restaurant and they're having the extra drink. They might have a glass of champagne to end the meal. But yeah, that's, you know, that's an extra 10 or 15 minutes right there. I mean, it's, it's helping drive the prices uh, of the average checkup. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, you remember when this opened, you couldn't sell your mother to get a reservation in here. No, no. In fact, you know, what was absolutely fascinating was to watch in 2015, they created the breakfast there just to, to try to sort of take some pressure off the facility. There was so much pent up demand to get into this place. The other thing, frankly, what I love about this facility is that Beatty and the crew, they took some real chances. I mean, for example, this isn't one particular day in the Beast Castle. In fact, for example, as you're walking in, if you're actually paying attention, you're there at the moment when the curse happens. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that the background story? Oh, yes. If you actually, as you're walking in, there's a piece of stained glass that shows the moment that the crone arrived and revealed herself to be a beautiful enchantress. But the moment you come through the door, you, the very first thing you see is that archway being held up by the, the two minotaurs. But there's a human face with horns in that archway, that's actually the young prince undergoing the transformation. So it, as you walk in, the curse is happening. I didn't. I didn't know this. So this this is the story. It was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the fact is, if you go into the rose gallery, the giant eight foot tall music box, the conceit is that Maurice made that for the Beast and Belle as a wedding gift. So in that room, it's not only happily ever after; it's after they're married. On the other hand, you're in the ballroom. Mm -hmm. You are there the day before everything's cleared away for the big dance. On the other hand, if you go into the West Wing, that's still where he's cursed. In a weird sort of way, you get to do a lot of time traveling in this wow, restaurant. I've, I've, never, I've never noticed that. But that's a, so as you walk through the different rooms, you're actually walking through a different chronology. Or the, yeah. the chronology of the story. So you're going through time and space. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. that's sophisticated. It's really a bold choice. For example, the Rose Gallery, the fact that when it's time for this to be a sit-down restaurant, that whole room gets pulled out of the inventory. 
because they need that prep space for bar work, for food, you know, all, all of that sort of thing. I mean, is there any other restaurant on Disney property that goes from, what is it, 526, 546 down to 340? I mean, just, and no. when you think about the people who you're turning away, it's all about, no, we have to have the best possible presentation for yeah. when this goes from quick service to table service. I just, I cannot imagine being with the bean counters and going, and we shut down the side of the restaurant. We lose 200 plates a night. Yeah. yeah. But they, they pull it off really, really well. If you look at the reader satisfaction survey results that we get you know, every mm-hmm. year, beer guests has consistently been 90% and above, regardless mm-hmm. of the meal. And it still is. It's, it's dropped a couple of percent now, I think, as, as people are getting used to it. But you know, it's always hovered between 90 and 95%, always been above average for Disney. The menu is very solid. Mm-hmm. If you look at the lunch entrees, there are things that they really came out with and were fan favorites from day one. The tuna niçoise salad, the croque monsieur, the French dip, I think was an original one, the carved turkey sandwich. They're all good. And they've been on the menu forever. The French onion soup has been on there forever. The gray stuff that they had on the menu, that was that was really interesting. And also, you know, they, they've been doing these cupcakes, mm. which I think are pretty decent for it. But the menu has largely stayed the same. And so have the prices. We're not yet at the point where the $17 tuna niçoise salad has become the $21 tuna niçoise salad. You know, the prices have remained relatively moderate considering the quality of the food and the quality of the experience. I mean, let's put it this way. I think if you're looking at a $13 fajitas meal at Pecos Bill or a $17 tuna niçoise salad at Be Our Guest, everyone would go to Be Our Guest, right? Mm-hmm. So Disney's, uh, Disney's done that really well. So they haven't, they haven't really done much with the lunch menu. The dinner menu, I'm not as enchanted about. I mean, the, the dinner prices are still fine mm-hmm. in the 26 to $36 range for the meals. I just think the times I've been there, the service is a little slow uh, because you're, you're, they're trying to feed so many people. I think uh, the, the kitchen can get behind. I think mm-hmm. lunch is the better of the two meals there. But when did they add breakfast? That started March of 2015. They did a three-month test, and it was successful enough that it just stayed in place. But uh, speaking of the food, though, to give you some idea of of how determined Disney was that this restaurant succeed, the chef Deerdorf, the head, the guy who who drove the bus here, he'd been in Disney kitchens for 25 years. He was actually out at Olani. I mean, that's how high up this guy was that they had their standalone Hawaiian resort. It was absolutely crucial that the food be perfect there and and respect the regional cuisine. And The food at Alani is amazing. It's Disney's best resort. I mean, for a variety of reasons, but the food is incredible. But they pulled him out of Alani and brought him back to to be our guest because it was like, this can't just be good. This has to be great. And so make this guy travel 6,000 miles, come back, and ride her on the, this kitchen that, again, has to transform from quick service to yeah. table service. You know, there were some things that, that fell by the wayside, uh, largely, again, because of the Rose Gallery. I mean, you probably remember that piece of concept art early, early on for Be Our Guest that showed one of those living character initiative, the version of Lumiere on a table that was going to be pushed through this restaurant to entertain right. guests. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the story I've been told is like, well, yeah, you can have that if we can have the Rose Gallery open for dinner. And it's like, 
well, no, we need that prep space. And it's like, well, then you can't have that because in order to recover what we're going to lose by losing those 200 seats, mm-hmm. that we're going to have to cram more tables into the ballroom. And that lead, that doesn't leave enough room to push the cart through that would have Lumiere. Oh, right. I remember this conversation. Yeah. So that fell by the wayside, which is kind of ironic given that if you think about it, we've got the Ratatouille ride that's supposed to open. In fact, they're doing site prep now over at France, getting ready for for that to come up out of the ground. And one of the things that people love about the Walt Disney Studios version over in France is Mm -hmm. that when the attraction ends, you're in Chef Remy's. You can actually go to dine there. Weirdly, we're not getting that. We're just getting the ride here. But I think that's also a nod to the Chefs de France, the whole notion of how many French restaurants can that resort realistically support without yeah, cutting into the, the business. Yeah, the answer is two, by the way. So they've got three. The answer is two. I don't think uh, Monsieur Paul's is actually that good. Mm-hmm. I think for Remy, though, I think you're right. The what, what Disney's saying with this is, look, Chefs de France is really good. It's supposed to be dedicated to the cuisine of France. It is different in that they're trying to preserve the original intent of the restaurant adding in you know adding it, it into the exit of a theme park ride would not be the same theming and I, I can see them not doing it you know that said I, I would be more than happy to have the ride exit at boulangerie patisserie because I think that's a great restaurant in and of itself I could see the exit of the ride happening there there are all these lessons five years of lessons that the company would love to apply from Be Our Guest to the next big character dining or dining as an experience. And let let me break your heart here a little bit for you because I've been talking with the folks who were working on Gigantic, the Disney project directed by Nathan Grano, the gentleman who did Tangled and with the music by the Lopez's who did, of course, all the great work for Frozen and just did the music for Coco as well. This was supposed to be the Spain Pavilion. This was the heart of the the thing that was coming to Epcot. Right. First of all, they were going to have a dining experience where you were dining in the dollhouse that the little girl had set up for Jack. So you were going to be the tiny people in the giant doll's dollhouse, you know, having the dining experience there. But, but again, you were also going to be able to, as you exited the attraction, which took you through the world of Gigantic, mm-hmm. have the option of, did you want to get, you know, go grab a meal inside of the dollhouse and sit there on tiny little chairs or tables that were made out of, you know, found objects. But when the company pulled the plug on Gigantic late last year. Late last year, yeah. Care to guess how much they'd already spent on the film before they walked away from it? Uh, 50 million? Try 98. I was going to say 100 to start with. Ah, darn. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 100 million dollars. Yeah. And the weird thing is that talking with folks at the studio, they're like, look, understand, we made three different runs at Frozen or the Snow Queen, excuse me, the Hans Christian Andersen story before we finally figured out Frozen. And there's still... Yeah, yeah, and that worked out for them, so, you know. So the gigantic shutdown for now, uh, but they are hoping that, you know, at some point somebody gets a handle on this. And if only, again, because it was, you know, it was set in Spain and and more to the point you could do this amazing attraction and this dining experience and still authentically pay tribute to the country of Spain and you know and add something fun 
to Epcot. Well, I think that's that's sort of the legacy of Be Our Guest is mm. that it forced every other in-park restaurant that came after it to up its game. Because you saw immediately after, in the first couple of years after Be Our Guest opened, there was tremendous pressure on Cinderella's Royal Table to up its game. It went through, it's been through what, two refurbishments? Oh God, yeah. Since yeah. Be Our Guest opened. And you know, because people were looking at that saying, why am I spending $70 for lunch at Cinderella's Royal Table when I can get a $17 lunch at Be Our Guest? And frank, frankly, the food's better and the atmosphere is just as good. If, you know, if it's a, the thing that I'm not meeting Cinderella, well, you know, with four people, the, the cost difference means you can go to Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. And I think that's the thing that you, you see in a lot of theme park restaurants now, heavily themed, very place centric look at skipper canteen which you know we can debate whether the food is good or whatever but but the place for that and how it's themed to its story is much different than let's say liberty tree tavern or crystal palace and speaking of which you have heard that the jungle cruise movie is now a go Oh, it's got what's his name in it? That uh, former player from the University of Miami, which is um, I'm, I'm blanking on his Dwayne something. Dwayne something, Johnson, something. yes, yes. You know that who right now Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, actually just this past weekend beat the Last Jedi at the box office. So Disney is very pleased that he's going to be in their Jungle Cruise movie. But more to the point, the Flavor Lab, the folks who came up with the menu and, and continue to tinker with the menu at Skipper Cantina have already been given a heads up. It's like, look, this is the script. We're going to be adjusting that restaurant yet again when the Dwayne Johnson movie comes out with the hope that, you know, if we have a hit film, that will finally get people into that place. Because aren't they still struggling at this point? Or It still hasn't achieved what it could, which is a shame because I think the food is good and the service is good. I, it has so much potential. By the way, Jim, you know how Johnny Depp occasionally shows up in Disneyland and Pirates of the Caribbean to surprise guests? Mm-hmm. I'm just throwing it out here right now for Dwayne Johnson from one you am alumnus to another. Mm-hmm. If you want to show up and be a waiter one day at Skipper Canteen after the movie comes out, I am I am there for you, man. I will help <laughs> you do that. Right? Because you imagine like you order the the chicken mm-hmm. instead of the steak, and, and and Dwayne Johnson raises one of his eyebrows at you, like, really? That's what you're going to order? And you're like, no, no, no. I'll go with whatever you recommend. I think go. that would be that would be fantastic. No, but I think um, also I think the menu should be everything tastes like chicken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? The, the jokes write themselves. They've, they've already been written. What are we talking about here? There no, we but go. I think, you know, I think going back to it, I think that's the legacy of Be Our Guest. Mm-hmm. It sets the bar for what all new theme park restaurants should be. And when they don't do that, like Skipper Canteen hasn't quite hit that level yet. You know, it, it's kind of obvious. And mm-hmm. um, But that's good. I mean, Disney should be continually trying to improve its its restaurants and its, its offerings. And Be Our Guest is a shining example of that. I'm kind of interested to see what happens with uh, not so much with Toy Story Land, but whatever the inevitable restaurant is in uh, either the Star Wars in Galaxy's Edge or in the Star Wars Hotel, how how they carry forward that that uh, that theming concept. So hopefully we'll learn more about this year. Yeah, I mean, and what's intriguing to me is the ones that are on deck looking for homes. They've gone through all of the Disney films, and what they did was they pulled a number of focus groups in and said, if you had your opportunity, if you had this list to choose from, where would you want to be able to go to dine at a Disney theme park? And evidently mm-hmm. the, the place, and, and it's kind of intriguing because it's, it's really not 
one of the most popular Disney films. But from Princess and the Frog, Tiana's restaurant at the end, the New Orleans cuisine that's in the warehouse that looks like a riverboat, evidently that's the one whenever they do the tests, Tiana's is where they want to go next. Well, because, you know, sort of a New Orleans jazz supper club idea is is enticing. Remember, Disney tried this on the Disney Cruise Line, and the restaurant did not do well. In fact, I think they're replacing it again with something else now. Really? Yeah, I think it's getting another uh, another refurbishment. I think the the problem though is with the location on the ship, not necessarily with the concept. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's I think it's a great idea. I've had wonderful meals in New Orleans. I, what was uh, what else What else do people uh, want besides that? They wanted to try a more authentic version of Tony's, and in the end, it was one of these. Well, let me get this straight. I'm eating out in the alley off of a garbage can, and it's like you know, like no, no, no all right, I get it. Maybe you don't want that, but it's just you know, when yeah. you think a lot of the the Disney <laughs> dining experiences. <laughs> when you when you started this when you started this conversation, the first thing that popped in my head was the old yellow restaurant. <laughs> like as, as you're seated, you get a gun. <laughs> and it was the and it was the worst possible concept I can come up with. Too. <laughs> oh, I think we've actually talked about our. our one of our walkthroughs of the park. In fact, it was David Mumford who was talking about, you know, how friends David and 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 his wife Carol were great dog lovers, and their dogs were the best man. And and I think they're the ring bearers at their wedding. But at one point, you know, they were talking about this whole thing about how everything in Disney has to have an IP, and it's like, well, yeah. why don't we just do the old Yeller shooting gallery? So you know, and it's just like. <sighs> You know, the notion is you go down to your local ASPCA and it's just sort of like, you know, get a couple of dogs and here's your bowl of complimentary whipped cream. Now, now get out there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is what Imagineers talk about letting it over beers. Yeah, David at least had the wherewithal to pretend to be horrified. So anyway, I, on that sure to get us letters note, I, I think we'll, we, we should pack it in for this week, Lynn. So. I do want to follow up on, uh, I, I agree, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap this one up. And the next show will be our chronological Disneyland show, is that right, Jim? Yes, we'll head right back in there. And uh, I do want to follow up on this. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, Spain Pavilion is no-go. I did hear that uh, work is supposed to begin on Brazil this year. Have you heard that? Right now, there's two and three more meetings that have to happen from a financial point of view. Uh, they, they supposedly have a letter of intent with both government officials, and they're looking to line up a sponsor they've got two and three possibles but again this is classic disney it's like we can if we want to build this it's going to cost this much if you want to build this it's going to cost that much yeah and that's the point they're at now they again it circling back to the george caligrius letter about being on the path to 50 oh yeah they got they got to get started now no that's it exactly that that if they, they're going to have a new land opened for 2021 they it has to break ground this year and so you know that's there's a real sense of urgency but again you know it's just the the whole notion of there are so many ways this could go south and remember you know we got close to doing things with brazil and then they had their you know, yeah, we've talked. We've t- yeah, uh, we we talked about it during our uh, our live event. We we saw the actual contracts, yeah. right, for uh, for landscaping and things like that. Yeah, but I think I think for this time, if we don't see construction begin or clearing begin so at some point in a world showcase around the the Germany area, if we don't see that happen by June, I don't think it's going to happen for the fiftieth. It's got it's pretty much got to begin mm. within the first six months of this year. And if it doesn't, then we know it won't happen. But uh, if we do see some 
you know, bulldozers or construction equipment back there, then we'll know that something's definitely happening. Okay. Well, here's hoping because, you know, again, the nice thing about, you know, doing all of the work with uh, Ratatouille is that yeah. in theory that, you know, it as once you get the steel up and they begin enclosing the building, you can just, you know, roll that team down the street and have them. Exactly. Go. Yeah. But. That's the thing. There are plans, you know, and it's just, it, but you never know what's going to come along and cause a hiccup. So, all right, we'll see what happens. I, uh, I have faith in this one. I think it's going to happen this year. Okay, here's open. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to your local bulldozer and on the shovel of the bulldozer, write us a letter about what you would like to hear next on the show and also throw in your comments. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.